Welcome to the Nuclear Information and Resource Service telebriefing commemorating the 40th anniversary of the start of the ongoing Three Mile Island nuclear power disaster. Uh, nuclear Information Resource Service NEARS is a nonprofit public interest group that educates and organizes against nuclear power and the radiation from the nuclear power and weapons fuel chain. We started in 1978 and are at www.nears.org. Uh, the Three Mile Island nuclear power meltdown started in the wee hours of March 28, 1979, 40 years and a few days ago. We have three experts and survivors of the Three Mile Island disaster who came to it, were at it, survived it from very different perspectives. Uh, Nears is proud to bring them together tonight to remember and remind us of the dangers and help focus on how to prevent more of these inevitable events as long as we have nuclear power. We have Eric Epstein, Executive Director of Three Mile Island Alert, Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds, and Eileen Miyoko-Smith, Executive Director of Green Action of Japan. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Sure. You're welcome. Three Mile yeah, great. And, um, great to so be we here. Three Mile Island Alert held a series of events in and around Harrisburg and the Three Mile Island area in commemoration of the 40th anniversary. And we will start with just a few minutes hearing from Eric and Arnie about those events and some of the exciting developments and battles that are ongoing today. And then we'll hear from all three uh, in order, uh, Eric, Arnie, and then Eileen, on their perspectives on the Three Mile Island disaster and uh, and and since as it as it continues. So, uh, Eric, did you want to? Well, I guess I should uh, introduce Eric. Eric Epstein is an educator and community advocate, a teacher, college professor, former state senate candidate, employed self-employed consultant, government reformer, nuclear watchdog chair and spokesperson of Three Mile Island Alert since uh, 1984, I think, and yep. an organizer, safe energy organizer who's uh, watchdogged the um, Three Mile Island, uh, Peach Bottom, and other reactors, Susquehanna, in Pennsylvania. Uh, his written papers contributed to publications, intervened, testified, fought rate hikes, and is currently fighting the ridiculous bailouts that Pennsylvania could be giving to continue nuclear power and many other important projects. So Eric uh, and Arnie, uh, Arnie Gunderson is the chief engineer at Fairwinds with more than 45 years of nuclear power engineering experience. He uh, has uh, tracked the Fukushima disaster. Um, his background is, is in nuclear engineering, and he worked for the industry for, for many years. And I understand that it was during Fukushima that he really saw um, change directions on nuclear power. So if you two want to tell us what happened in Pennsylvania to commemorate the anniversary, 
rate? Um, it's Eric. I can start. We uh, had a number of events, and for, uh, we, we understood that people could not uh, um, be present for a number of the events. So. If you go to our website at TMIA.com, we have uh, everything videotaped. Uh, we started with a historical uh, commemorative event, which is still ongoing at the uh, John Harris Mansion in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, actually in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, Arnie spoke uh, about the uh, accident and radiation releases, and we had a uh, journalist, R.B. Swift, who covered the accident. He was present also. Um, and that's all captured again on video. Uh, later that night, we had a uh, dinner. Uh, for survivors, uh, which was moderated by Bill Kologi. And we had a number of speakers, including visitors from Japan. And on Monday, we had a press conference, which included Tim Judson from Nears, Arnie, and myself talking about the accident. Um, Arnie and I also participated in a panel event on March 27th, which will be on, um, and I, Arnie may have a better feel for when the actual date is, but was on C-SPAN. So, I mean, there are a number of events, uh, and, you know, one of the things that we've tried to do is preserve memories so people uh, in future generations can reach back and have a real um, uh, objective but also a searing uh, look at what happened and the accident that continues. We do have an archive at Dickinson College, and I would encourage people to go there where we have oral histories from year zero, year 25, uh, virtual museum, and uh, real uh, in-depth scholarly archives. In fact, Dickinson is very accommodating for scholars who want to come to the area and do the research. And uh, also, there were two uh, uh, media networks that put together a um, uh, real in-depth study of Three Mile Island. One was PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network, which interviewed a lot of folks. They had a Three Mile Island marathon and then um, WITF NPR, along with um, uh, the Patriot News here, did a lot. So there's a lot out there. Obviously, everybody has a search engine. You can check it out, put my name in, Arnie's name, Three Mile Island, the information's there. We also have a press packet at our website, uh, which is pretty in-depth. So, look, if folks want to reach back in time and see what happened last week, it'll be preserved uh, in perpetuity. Uh, Arnie played a large role, and I, I you know, may, may want to give Arnie a moment uh, to talk about his experiences. He was here for uh, the better part of a week. Yeah, I had a wonderful host, Eric. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, this is Arnie Gunderson. Uh, if you're taking notes, it's S-E-N, not S-O-N. Um, the um, uh, my my couple of takeaways on the on the experience of speaking. I'll talk about TMI and what happens later. But on the experience of of speaking is the importance of uh, a Facebook group that is uh, starting up and that is uh, trying to capture. Um, the experiences of people who lived in the area at the time of the disaster. Um, it's epidemiologically, it's really important to get this information. And uh, you know, either it, if nothing has happened to you, join the join the group. If you are aware of serious health effects to either someone in your family, yourself, or or a neighbor or whatever, join the group. Um, Good statistics makes good epidemiology, and um, I'm really excited that the survivors of the disaster are banding together to have that Facebook group. Uh, I'll go into the rest later. Thank you. And there were about 115, 120 uh, people at that dinner that Eric talked about from 
all around uh, the country, the world, and the community. And one of the things that I came away with having attended it was um, very excited that the plants that have been collected by Mary Osborne um, are going to be uh, donated to the Smithsonian Institute. So I don't know if, Eric, you wanted to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Mary lived uh, north of the plant in uh, Lower Swat era, uh, and uh, Mary Osborne <coughs> Stamos, her, her health is uh, failing right now, but so we had to really work with urgency. She has planned, uh, collected plant mutations uh, for 40 years, and so uh, we're teaming up with the Smithsonian, and we will be transferring 300 samples uh, to the uh, institution, um, put a lot of work into it. Scott Portsline really spearheaded the effort. Uh, we're almost done, but um, we used a lot of high-tech uh, so that every uh, specimen that's going to be donated will have a historical context and oral history, and also in terms of um, uh, geography, you'll be able to pinpoint exactly where uh, the uh, specimen came from. But uh, it was a yeoman's effort. Uh, if you ever visited Mary's house, the house was just filled with specimens. Um, and as she started to decline in health, she moved in with her daughter, Leslie. Uh, so TMI alert, we had a bunch of folks that uh, did the videotaping, the archiving. Uh, it's very professional, very thorough. We're, we're real excited. And I think Smithsonian um, is assuming that we have gathered data that they can, when they have better technological resources, reach back and see uh, just how much radiation was released, which is a topic Arnie discussed. But um, that's one of the projects that's ongoing from uh, the anniversary. I mean, we had tried to get it done in time for the anniversary, but just weren't wasn't able to tie it together. Uh, Mary did attend a lot of the events, and um, a lot of the folks that had worked with Mary on this had passed away. Jane Lee, who was over on the West Shore, uh, Norman Marjorie Ahmed also played a role with her, uh, just a slew of folks. So the 40th anniversary is so important because folks with an appreciable memory um, are, you know, there, there's still a, uh, you know, a, a number of folks that are around, including the former mayor of Middletown. But, you know, our concern was, and there was a sense of urgency to preserve as much as we could. Uh, so we do have a relationship with the Smithsonian. We have a solid relationship with Dickinson. And Dauphin County Historical Society did something that I think also real important. They uh, displayed memorabilia. Uh, ephemeral, ephemeral material uh, stuff from the protests, the demonstrations, litigation. It's all there. It's all preserved. Uh, I would also put, point out that the Historical Society uh, printed a new book on the anniversary. It's a photo montage of Three Mile Island by Eric Fazek. So, um, as you might guess, as a historian, we've spent a, a, a lot of time trying to document and preserve as much as we could. And I'll close by saying, and I know Eileen is going to talk about it, the categories did a hugely important study here. There were other uh, groups in the area like Jane Lee and Mary, uh, Pat Smith from Newberry, Norman Marjorie Ahmed, at TMI Alert, but all four of those surveys um, are at Dickinson College where we collected data right after the accident. If you go to TMI Alert website and if you're listening and feel that you had an adverse health pack, uh, impact, uh, we do have a health survey that we're encouraging people to take. So consistent with what Arnie said, it's an ongoing process and consistent with Diane said, it's an ongoing accident and consistent with the findings from Penn State in 2017. Uh, we've been able to identify increased thyroid cancer as a result of Three Mile Island, and that study will continue. So anybody who's from the area had thyroid cancer uh, needs to get a hold of Penn State Hershey College Medicine. 
thanks. Uh, so what we wanted to do now is uh, move into short presentations, about seven to ten minutes, ten minutes each, and uh, however long you need, um, to give us your perspectives on, on the disaster. Um, I wanted to point out uh, to the listeners that our, all four of our organizations, uh, Nuclear Information Resource Service, Three Mile Island Alert, and Fairwinds, F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S, and Green Action of Japan are nonprofits. And it would be terrific if folks could make donations to our organizations to keep on these fights. And we'll give you the, uh, uh, the addresses, the, the web addresses uh, at the end. But um, we will move in now to uh, Eric, then Arnie, and then Eileen. Um, tell, us, tell us about TMI, Eric. Well, look, I don't want to overshadow the other folks, and Eileen and Arnie have been incredibly important for us. But just to give you a sense of background, uh, right now uh, we view the accident uh, as not an accident but a disaster that was avoidable. Um, it's ongoing, and to give people some idea of where we're at, is that Three Mile Island Unit 2 came online late, two and a half times over budget, five years behind schedule. It only operated for 90 days. Pennsylvania, we have a rule known as used or useful. The people that owned uh, the plan at the time, which actually really no longer exists, hurried to get the plan online. So when we had the accident, we had an unusual situation where the plan, we, we spent $700 million to build the plan. After the accident, there was no decommissioning funds. We, there was absolutely no vision at the time of how we were going to clean these plants up, so we had to bail the plan out. So the fuel from TMI, for the most part, has been removed and sits in Idaho. Uh, the plant itself has been abandoned. In the 80s, we had up to 1,500 workers removing the fuel. There are no workers there. The plant is owned by First Energy. Next to it is an operating plant that's owned by Exelon. Uh, so it's a very convoluted situation. The people that own TMI-1 said, look, we're not going to clean up TMI-2 until TMI-1 comes offline. So TMI-2, and there has not been a human entry in the basement for 40 years, remains a high-level radioactive waste site. Arnie and I have discussed it. They're predicting the cost to be $1.2 billion. It's probably $5 billion. So right now we spent $3 billion for a plant that operated for 90 days, which may never be cleaned up. Three Mile Island, by the way, isn't three miles. It's 2.2 miles long, and it used to be actually farmed very heavily because it's flooded frequently. So it's the worst place for a nuclear plant to be storing radioactive waste on an island in a river that empties into the Chesapeake Bay. So essentially the plant's been abandoned, and I don't know if we have the technical resources or the financial wherewithal to clean the plant up. The people that own the plant, First Energy, are bankrupt. Uh, that's at Unit 2, Unit 1, which has been operating since 74. If it doesn't get bailed out, shuts down in September, and we're hoping at that point uh, we're, we, we can begin cleaning up both plants. But um, in retrospect, I think Three Mile Island did something. If there's a positive, it ignited a fierce debate on the viability of nuclear power as a safe resource, an economic resource, a healthy resource. And in a lot of ways, we're back 
to where we were. I mean, there's a lot of people out here that would embrace, maybe not on this line, but uh, who would call themselves environmentalists and embrace nuclear as a solution to carbon, which uh, couldn't be further from the truth. So, ironically, we're finding ourselves where we were 40 years ago. Our group was founded in 77. Uh, we began organizing in 75. We monitor three nuclear power plants, as Diane said, Peach Bottom, Three Mile Island, and Susquehanna, but we're known uh, uh, because of Three Mile Island. Um, in our view, we're probably going to be around for another four decades. I, I don't know that the plant, TMI-2, gets cleaned up. Not really sure what happens to TMI-1, uh, but the reality is, and, and, and Arnie and Diane were up here, is that we're in the middle of a bruising battle about bailing out TMI. Uh, and, um, you know, folks, and, and I think Nears probably has some information on the bailouts in other states. It's ironic that TMI make, may make history again. It was the plant that suffered the worst commercial disaster in America. It's a plant that may never be cleaned up. I think entombment would be an absolutely awful idea. And it's a plant that may... Um, get bailed out. It's an uneconomical plant. TMI Unit 1, the one not involved with the accident, has lost $300 million over the last five years. The other plants in Pennsylvania combined have made $679 million. So we're at an interesting intersection 40 years after the accident at Three Mile Island. Nuclear power has clearly failed as an, uh, a resource. Economically, uh, it's been given some lifeblood uh, by bailouts in New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Pennsylvania. We hope it doesn't happen. But, you know, I'm not really sure that people living around here want to make history again uh, by having a nuclear power plant not cleaned up. So if I can leave folks with anything is that it's an ongoing accident. Um, it's not over. And when you go through this kind of psychic terror, when you evacuate your home not knowing if you're coming back, that fear stalks you in perpetuity. Now, there is another generation here, and that fear will recede, but, uh, you know, from our perspective, we're going to have to be vigilant and present and monitor for decades to come, and I'm just not sure the country has the, um, I'm trying to think of the right, right, nowadays, I don't know that they have the attention span to deal with an environmental issue like Three Mile Island, where you have to be really relevant for 40 years. People just stop paying attention. So... Uh, I'm hoping there'll be a new generation to come forward. We can pass the baton off. But what I would encourage everybody listening is just to keep in mind that it's an accident without an end. Yeah, this is Arnie. Uh, do you want me to pick up on my thoughts of uh, the presentations this weekend? Yes, go right ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I agree with everything that uh, that Eric said. It's an accident without an end and likely is going to cost billions more to clean up Unit 2 than, uh, than anticipated. A clean nuclear plant costs a billion dollars to clean up, and uh, TMI-2 is anything but clean. Um, I think it would be cool if, the, uh, if there are any Japanese um, listening to this conversation to um, uh, use TMI-2 as a test bed to uh, clean up contamination before they try Fukushima. Um, it's, it's less contaminated than Fukushima, but still highly contaminated, and might, um, might do wonders for some international cooperation on, uh, on cleaning up highly contaminated reactors. Um, you know, TMI was the first. Uh, three reactors at uh, Fukushima were the third, fourth, and fifth, but likely there will be more. 
okay, so my thoughts about the uh, presentation. You know, I was on the other side of this argument when TMI um, happened. I was on um, um, on television in upstate New York, just just right over the border from uh, Pennsylvania, saying uh, the Titanic hit the iceberg and the iceberg sunk. You know, I was that convinced that uh, nothing happened. And uh, it, this these forty uh, over forty years, I've I've certainly changed my view. Um, that the the key for me is that you're dealing with an orthodoxy with a, with the priesthood, and they cannot imagine what to do when things go wrong, because they've so convinced themselves that things can't go wrong. And you know, I I, I was part of it at uh, at TMI. I, I was. Uh, um, I believed what the orthodoxy told me, and I related to others. But I've, I've stood back now, and I watched that happen at Fukushima by others. And, and Maggie and I committed to uh, not let the cover-up that began at Three Mile, not let that playbook play itself out at, um, at Fukushima as well. All five meltdowns, TMI, Chernobyl, and three at Fukushima, um, uh, during all five meltdowns, the nuclear industry was using the same playbook, which is minimize the risk, delay evacuations, and um, and know that um, people are not going to be dying in the street within an, a day. So they're, by the time the television crews get bored um, and the cancers begin to grow, uh, it will be difficult to... Uh, um, to get a, um, a consensus that those cancers were then caused by the radiation. Uh, but in fact, they, they are. You know, Eric mentioned uh, uh, increase in thyroid cancer. Steve Wing has uh, documented uh, increases in lung cancer. And um, the, the orthodoxy, the, the nuclear priesthood, is willing to not tell the truth to government officials. Uh, we saw that at Fukushima um, when uh, Naora Khan, the prime minister, said to me, um, Arnie, the information I got, this is from METI, his Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and, T and Tokyo Electric, Arnie, the information I got was neither accurate nor uh, timely. So when, a, when the top dog in a country doesn't get timely and accurate information from the, lead, from the regulators, or from the owner of the nuclear reactor, you know you got a problem. But it didn't start at Fukushima. It started at Three Mile Island. I was talking to um, Governor Thornburg five years ago, and, and he admitted to me that the owner of the plant back then, it was General Public Utilities, the owner of the plant, lied to him. I talked to Peter Bradford, and he said it was two days before we knew, uh, we at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, knew what was happening inside the plant because we weren't getting accurate information from the, from the owners. So the playbook that happened at, at Three Mile Island was, um, was replayed at, at uh, Chernobyl and then replayed three times over for Fukushima 1, 2, and 3. Um, that's my view as a, um, as a former member of the industry who can stand back now and, and realize that the orthodoxy can't imagine things becoming as bad as they have become at these five meltdowns because their training doesn't allow them 
to think outside the box. I guess that's, um, that's a pretty good short synopsis of six days' worth of uh, speechifying at TMI. Great. Um, Eileen Miyoko-Smith, thank you, you Ari. Um, Eileen Miyoko-Smith is Executive Director at Green Action of Japan in Kyoto, Japan. Uh, she's the founder and Executive Director, and it was started over 25 years ago. Um, before working there, uh, Eileen worked as a photojournalist with Life Magazine and photographed the impacts of pollution, disasters, um, health effects, including uh, Minamata disease victims in southern Japan. And when uh, Three Mile Island happened, she traveled to Harrisburg and met with people. And it's my understanding that she's the one that helped connect them to realize that the symptoms that they were feeling and maybe not even articulating were the same as those that people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, suffered after the bombings there. Um, and then, of course, when Fukushima happened, she went back home to, uh, well, was, was in Japan and has been working um, with people there uh, for decades, especially the mothers, and to help stop nuclear power not only in Japan but in the U.S. to prevent this from recurring. Um, she gave a TED Talk in 2013, which people should check out, and, um, and participated in the Muse concert in California after Fukushima, and it's been an inspiration to all of us. So, Eileen, uh, take it away. Okay, hi. Um, <clears throat> regarding the scheduling, um, did Arnie want to speak more? Um, I have it here that he's speaking some more, or Arnie? Oh, I could, I could talk for hours, Eileen. <laughs> I don't know that you had a 10-minute slot, that's all. Okay, the, the, if, I, if I can add one other thing. Um, I guess I'd like to talk about the um, um, the timeliness of evacuations. Um, at uh, at Three Mile Island, it was clear by seven o'clock, crystal clear by ten o'clock, and it was unconscionable by two o'clock on the very first day that uh, that the population was not evacuated. Um, of course, the the same delays occurred at uh, at Chernobyl and, um, and, and also at Fukushima. When Fukushima happened, um, people were evacuated into more highly radioactive areas than the areas they left because the plan was inadequate. When TMI happened, um, I had one of the attorneys in the uh, case against the, um, uh, I was representing the plaintiffs in the case against uh, Three Mile Island. One of their attorneys um, said, well, they didn't want to evacuate because the evacuation plans required people to drive toward the plant. And my reaction there was that, well, what kind of an evacuation plan is it? How much thought are we giving to evacuation planning? When, when you get to the point of needing to uh, evacuate, it should be um, um, based on defined criteria that are uh, essentially check boxes. 
and there should be no opportunity for um, individuals to um, um, to guess, which happened at Fukushima and which happened at uh, at Three Mile Island as well. So I think the lesson of emergency planning at those five reactors um, is that emergency planning is a joke. Um, recently here in the States we had uh, um, Tropical Storm Sandy that, uh, that, that um, almost flooded out the Oyster Creek plant. 39 of the 43 emergency sirens didn't work because the wind and the electricity losses and houses were floating down the street. It's kind of hard to evacuate when your neighbor's house is in front of you on the street. Um, similarly, we had with, uh, with Hurricane Florence here in uh, North Carolina, the nuclear plant there, Brunswick, was flooded out and um, uh, personnel had to get to it by helicopter. And the nearest large town, less than 10 miles away, um, could not be evacuated because it was flooded out with more than 100,000 people present. So emergency planning simply does not work. And, um, um, you know, it, it's, uh, um, it looks good on paper, but as soon as it's tested, it fails miserably. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and this is uh, Diane. Eileen, did you want to say anything, or did you want to wait a few more minutes? No, I'm fine. I just, I just thought that there was a time slot for Arnie, and I just want to make sure he had that opportunity. Um, yeah, I can see. Um, okay. And I to talk about <clears throat> my experience interviewing people around the Senile Island area, but just before saying that, I'd like to pick up on what Arnie just said. Um, uh, I'm based in Kyoto. Um, I would have taken green action, and we're working to try to prevent uh, the second Fukushima accident from happening, and any nuclear power in this country altogether. Uh, but one of the issues we work on intensively is this evacuation issue. And just I'm my wondering, moment, Eileen, it's a Eileen, it's a yeah. little hard to understand. I don't know whether maybe you, if you talked closer, further from your microphone, we could understand better. I had my, I had my earphone um, on the whole time, and I just get out this very moment. Can you hear me better now? Uh, go ahead, and we'll see. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me better now? I think so. I think so. Hello? Can you hear me yes. better? Okay. Okay. I, I just wanted to talk about um, the evacuation, touch on the evacuation issue before talking about Three Mile Island, and that is that we work intensively on evacuation issues here in Japan. My city, Kyoto, alone, um, we have to accept 65,000 people from um, near the nuclear power plant if, if an big accident happens. And so those of you who are listening... You may be living far away from a nuclear power plant, but actually you're quite near when you think about the fact that you might be an evacuation point. In other words, you may have tens of thousands of people have to come to your city. And so um, nuclear power isn't just a technical issue, but we're all experts because we know exactly what would happen to our towns and cities if either we had to evacuate or we had to accept this evacuee. And so from that viewpoint, we can all speak up. And I just wanted to point that out before talking about the Island. Island. Um, but it, it, of course, genuinely was that same experience in my island. Um, uh, my husband and I first 
asphalt right after the accident a year later we went and we lived in the three mile island area. Hold on one second, Eileen. I wanna ask Eileen, I wanna see if yeah. Tim Tim and Eric and Arnie could mute their phones because we're getting an echo. And then you can continue. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. Okay. So um, I just would like to talk about our experience interviewing, um, interviewing about 250 people in the Three Mile Island area. Um, we did this during the, the first few years right after the accident, but over a decade. Uh, and uh, several dozen of them we interviewed intensely. Uh, and um, our re- report is summarized. Um, you can find it on the Three Mile Island Alert site. It's called Three Mile Island Testament, uh, and my name's on it, um, Eileen Smith. Uh, what we found is that, <coughs> one is that when a nuclear power plant accident occurs, it doesn't matter if you're pro-nuclear or anti-nuclear, none of that, all of that gets thrown out. You're just putting everything into your you know, car and, and trying to keep your family protected and yourself protected. Um, what we found is that found that people had many concrete physical uh, experiences during and after the accident, and we followed that in detail. And that's what's in that um, Three Mile Island Testament report. And we found uh, people that had a metallic taste in their mouth and or they smelled metal, and that was in a quite wide area, even going out to Harrisburg, so, you know, 15-mile radius or further. And... Um, then we also um, found that many people had, some people had a burning and tingling sensation or redness of the skin. And some people noticed changes in the sky, um, either a smog-like situation over the Three Mile Island plant, or for example, a, the, the air looked really blue. And other people found like a powdered small fine substance on the ground. And um, what we really noticed is that people if, if, you were, if you were a farmer, you noticed that all the snakes had disappeared, but you could be living next door and working in town and you wouldn't even have noticed that had happened. So those that are really, like, really looking at the vegetation notice changes in the vegetation. But, like, say somebody like me, if I had been living there during the accident, I wouldn't have noticed um, any change in the tree, trees unless, you know, all the leaves fell off or something. So it's, it's, it's that if you're really involved in the environment around you, you notice the changes, like with the birds and everything. Um, and uh, we found people that had some extreme symptoms, like uh, really feeling red hot inside themselves. These are all people living like within a 10-mile radius. Um, really hot and getting a kind of really red sunburn, although they hadn't been outside. And when they returned from evacuation, um, their dogs had died, their cats had died, and all their, the, the eyes of the animals were all whited out. That was an extreme, but that area, that extreme case, um, we found many people um, with problems and cancers. And then the mothers, like Mary Osborne and um, Joyce Karate and the other mothers at Three Mile Island went door to door and found, tracked a little bit more about what the cancer rate was, and that led to an epidemiological study. So. What it is is that physical anecdotal observation first and then doing a, um, a layperson survey 
and then following up with an epidemiological study. That would be an example of that that small area that we looked at, that one area with with um, that Steve Wing looked at. <clears throat> and what we found is that with the um, Three Mile Island was studied so intensely, you know, with the Kemeny report, commission report in volumes and volumes and volumes, but only a few pages about the people's experience um, during and after the accident. In other words, what people physically noticed. And um, what we found is, what we realized is that, you know, there were only a scattering of monitors and dosimeters, but there were tens and thousands of people living in the area and we're all detectors and we all have our senses. Um, and the five senses caught many, many things. And I think that when um, something like this happens, it's really important to, to ask concretely the concrete experience of each person. And it can't be just that, oh, you really had that taste? Wow, really, that was weird. But really asking in detail what it was like, really going into every detail, really tracking exactly where you were, when it happened, um, what it was like, how long it lasted, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we did. And um, uh, uh, Eric mentioned that a lot of the documentation is in the uh, Dickinson College Library, and this oral history is also in there. So if anybody's interested, um, you can find it there. And um, I'm really glad that there's this um, support group for uh, survivors now, Facebook group, because um, the names of the people that, that, that we interviewed are on that site. Um, and, you know, it would be great to be able to find out what happened to, um, to everybody. And um, <clears throat> we would like to track that. Of course, it's very difficult to do in a big logical study. Um, but uh, it would be good to find out what happened to, to people. Um, I, I, I did get a master's in public health afterwards and studied epidemiology, so I know about all the, you know, statistically what you need to do to get a statistical analysis. But this anecdotal is really, really important. And I wanted to convey um, that I did interview some people after the Fukushima accident, and um, they didn't know any of the symptoms that people had at Three Mile Island. But um, again, you know, I'm talking to somebody and they start talking about a metallic taste. Uh, and they start talking about how they felt um, something on their skin. And I just find that um, it was really uh, kind of an amazing um, kind of a feeling of this really, really has to get recorded. Uh, I want to um, tell you, spend a few minutes talking about one person I interviewed, and I've lost track about the number of minutes I've spoken. So if you could keep track, maybe I have a few more minutes. You're, you're doing fine. I, I'd say you'd have about, um, okay. I don't know, four or five more minutes even because we, we're a little bit faster. Okay, than okay, got it. Yeah, okay. Take your time. Okay, so, um, okay. Um, this woman that I would like to <coughs> tell you about, is, her name is Mizue Kanno, and um, she's helped um, since, I've known her for many years now, since the Fukushima accident. Uh, she was an evacuee from the Fukushima area, and um, we worked on anti-nuclear power issues in the Kansai area, which is you know, Osaka, Kyoto area, trying to stop the plants here. Um, after I knew her for a few years, and I knew, of course, about her experience with evacuating, et cetera, I decided I wanted to interview her. And so um, I interviewed her and found out all these things, which she had never spoken about um, during the years that I, I knew her. 
the, the first few years I knew her. Um, she worked three, she worked two and a half miles from the plant, uh, Fukushima, when the accident occurred. Of course, it was a huge earthquake, and so it was really you know, devastating earthquake that they had. And um, she made her way back home through cracked roads and broken and fallen electric pole, electric poles. And um, she made her way home and got back in the evening. And in the meantime, about 25 relatives all gathered together because their homes had fallen down, et cetera, and her house was still standing. Uh, the next morning, which the accident happened on March 11th, so the next morning, the 12th, they weren't worried about the Fukushima plant because they felt it's, you know, it's probably, I mean, they hadn't heard anything about it going, anything going wrong. Um, and they knew that they weren't downwind, uh, but they did start worrying about their vegetables. And they went out to the garden to try to get the vegetables, wash them and get them into the house. And that's when they said that the skin, part that was exposed, started drying and cracking. And there was this powdery substance on, on their skin. And she describes it that it actually hurt. The skin hurt. And they said that when they were getting the vegetables, they, they, whenever they laughed or smiled, their lips cracked and blood started coming out. And so there was blood around their mouth and their teeth and everything. And they looked at each other and, and said, wow, this is like a horror movie. And they said, Horaenga, horror movie. And they finished getting the vegetables. Um, <clears throat> during that time, they started having the smell, uh, a metallic smell. And, um, and um, they, they, they felt this strong smell. And she says that two days later, after the explosion, the smell was so strong and so horrible that that's when she really got freaked out. But anyway, that day, um, gathering the vegetables, they felt that, and they, it was this sort of smell of like a pot, a pan burning um, without anything in it. And they actually went inside the house to see if some pot was, you know, they left some pot with a fire underneath, um, um, but um, there wasn't, but there was a strong taste. And that afternoon, late in the afternoon, two people with protective clothing, completely dressed in, in white protective clothing with masks on, drove up, and they were frantically through the closed windows telling her, you've got to leave, you've got to evacuate, you've got to flee. And um, she was, of course, already concerned, and many of her relatives had already fled, and by the end of that day, everybody had fled. But her son um, was helping people who had um, had their homes collapsed and injured and everything in the earthquake, and he wanted to stay, and so she decided to stay with him. So she stayed on. And, um, and, uh, and finally, the whole town, her town, Namie, she lived 17 miles from the plant, evacuated 21,000 people the, on the 15th, so four days after the accident started. And the next day, she started getting diarrhea, and her son had diarrhea, and she said it was a really strange diarrhea. Her stomach didn't hurt at all, but even putting one little piece of food inside the mouth, it would just, everything would just drain out. And she had that for a couple of weeks. And um, during the evacuation, she was screened, and her hair and the top jacket um, it went off scale, and she asked, what's the scale? And they just said, it goes off scale at 10,000. But she didn't even ask what the 10,000 was. She just knew that it went off scale. Um, and 
three years ago, um, or let's see, March of 2016, uh, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and had the operation that month. And um, she's okay, and she's working. I just spoke with her this morning. She has her two grandkids over, so she was really busy. Um, and she's very active in trying to stop nuclear power in this area. But here's this one person that I knew for several years, never had this conversation, talked about it, and this is all just information I get. And so it's like, and even she says in speeches, like, radiation is scary. You can't taste it. You can't smell it. And it's like um, everybody says that about radiation. And we don't know what this taste is, but, you know, we, 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 the whole physical experience, nobody confirms to us. And so it's really hard for each person to, to identify it themselves, you know, and, um, and realize that, that this has something to do with, um, you know, with the accident. Anyway, I went over time, but um, that's the experience that she had. No, don't. That's the end. Don't, don't worry about going over time. We are under time here. And so we have, um, if there's anything else that you'd like to add or that Arnie or Eric would like to add. Yeah, well, let me just point out with evacuation, I think it's a really es- essential issue is at the time of the accident at Three Mile Island, there was no 24-7, 365 news cycle. Um, I happen to think our evacuation plans are better because in the old days they were a little more than a rolled-up piece of paper and a bureaucrat's desk. But you simply can't regulate uh, human behavior. And um, the Three Mile Island experience, I think, is instructive. Um, as, as Arnie pointed out, you know, they wanted people to evacuate back in um, to the area. Actually, you can't do that anymore because we would actually have one way out, uh, which would make no sense because parents would be coming in to pick up their kids. What we found in the years afterwards is that there's really been a gigantic leap in the number of people that are housed in non-ambulatory facilities, whether it's Alzheimer's care um, or whether it's dementia care, whether it is at the other age range, um, pre-K kids who are non-ambulatory. There's no bus plan. So from children to adults to seniors, we have these large swaths of population that can't be evacuated even if you had a plan in place that was workable, we found that the emergency medical rooms can only handle maybe four to six people with radiation sickness. But the thing, and Arnie had pointed this out that connects us, is this playbook that they use at TMI, Chernobyl, and Fukushima depends on the company controlling the information, the company initiating the information. And for every day they're shut down, that's a whole lot of money they're not making. The system itself is fundamentally flawed because you can't ask the bank robber whether, you know, to make sure the bank is secure. And, you know, our plans are better and are probably paid dividends in natural disasters. But when I look now at Three Mile Island and if an accident would occur again, um, I still think the plans are a myth. I don't think they work. Last November, we had a surprise snowstorm. I'm a school board director. It was November 15th. Nobody could move for four hours. Four hours. So when we do evacuation planning, and you have to be from here probably to understand this, we should do worst case scenario. Friday night, people leaving work, going home to Penn State for a football game, snow. This is a very heavily touristed area. We have the Amish in Lancaster, Hershey Chocolate, Gettysburg. You just don't plan for things like that. And one of the unique things about 
Three Mile Island is we have a large agricultural population. Within that population is a large Amish population. They don't use modern communications. It's difficult to phone somebody when they don't have a phone. So this whole game that we're playing, and it's a game, it's a cruel joke, that we can evacuate is a non-starter. What's worse, in America, what happens when the plants are decommissioned, they tend to retreat and don't have any planning outside of their fence line. So, I mean, nuclear power is one of those issues where you have to keep your eye on the ball for a very long time, and I don't know if it's in people's human nature to do that. The other thing I would point out is people change, and as time goes by, there's less people trained. They have less of a command of what to do. After the accident, you know, you know the government gave us all these little toys to play with uh, that really didn't have form or function. Same thing that happened after 9-11. Everybody was getting equipment. Uh, but, but the mental edge, the ability to prepare is, is just something I don't think – it's hard to prepare for what you can't prepare for. And I think Eileen and, and, and um, Arnie hit on something that's very, very important. If you look at TMI, as, as the days wore on, there was less people home. There were less lights on. The area was vacant. People left. They didn't know if they were coming back. They had no idea what they were running from. You had churches on Sunday giving last rites. It was an eerie, scary, psychological terror that you don't get back. I'm confident that would happen again. And I think, you know, when folks are saying, yes, we have a plan, we can deal with the flood, whether it's Sandy or the flood at Cooper out in the Midwest, you can't. It doesn't work, and um, people aren't hypotheticals. There's just no way, in my mind, that you're going to tell a parent. I, I, again, as a school board director, we have Insta Instagram. We, we, we mail people messages when there's a snow, when there's a cancellation. Whenever there's a water event, we explicitly tell people not to come to the school. They come to the school and grab their kids. What's different nowadays is those kids have text capability. So you have all kinds of messages coming around, bouncing around, roaming around. Just happened to think, and Eileen pointed something else out as well, is no community in America is prepared. No community is prepared to house people coming from another community. You know, there's no provisions in place. Um, you know, you see it time and time again, whether it's Katrina or Sandy, that people will rush into these devastated areas afterwards. Don't think people are going to be keen to rush into a highly radioactive area. So, um, I appreciate Arnie and Eileen raising the issue of emergency preparedness. Uh, I happen to think that, you know, and this is what I tell people when they call in. You know, one of the things we do after the accident, we do our radiation monitoring. We, we provide people with potassium iodide. I said, look, at least, you know, have a plan like you should have in place by the Red Cross in case there's a fire. What are you going to do? You know, make sure you have a plan in place um, and, and, and try and be prepared for the unpreparable. But I happen to think, and I still believe 40 years later, that evacuating a nuclear power plant um, is a cruel hoax. There's um, can I make, another question. Can I make a short no, comment I, on that? Yeah, can yeah. I add something? Okay, Eileen and then Arnie. Go ahead. Okay, real quick. Um, Eric pointed out something really important, what he just said. Um, and also, with, if you're listening to this, this, this program, um, you know, even if you're living far away, you could have maybe be having to accept evacuees. And so what's really important is that we are the experts. The people living in the area are the experts on evacuation. You are an expert. If you're a stay-at-home mom, if you have kids in daycare, if you're taking care of an elderly person at home, 
you are the expert, and so we're the experts, and we need to tell our local authority, our, 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 you know, our towns and cities, that, look, um, what's going to happen? Am I going to be safe? Um, do you have a plan? And, and evacuation is a really important tool to speak on nuclear power, just like the Shoreham nuclear power plant um, that never got, got um, operated and had to be sold for a dollar. Um, it, 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 was, it was the evacuation plan. They went really into the evacuation plan, and people who, who had pets, they found out they had to leave their pets, and they got all upset. Even people who had, you know, racehorses, uh, expensive racehorses, they realized they'd lose their money. You know, people lose their homes, et cetera, and everybody started talking about it. And so it's really important. It's an everybody issue, and um, that's how you can address it. Ask your town if you have, if you have a plan. Arnie, um, go ahead, but I also wanted you to share, if you could, um, after you respond to this, uh, a little bit about uh, the doses and the health effects and how you and uh, Dr. Wing connected at a, TM, a Three Mile Island event to make a, a brilliant connection. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, Maggie and I moved from Vermont down to Charleston, South Carolina last summer. And we were uh, greeted uh, about three months later by um, the uh, by Hurricane Florence, and um, um, it, it, we had about seven days warning. And um, ultimately, at the very end, the uh, hurricane turned north and and hit the uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, about 200 miles north of us, and not us. But you know, in those seven days, I was getting gas for the generator. I was putting, I was boarding up the windows. And I was on a ladder boarding up the windows, and I realized I have seven days to prepare for this inevitability that, you know, I might get flooded out or, or, or what. We, we had plans to take the cats and what, what in the house we could leave behind and what we needed to take with us and where we could run to. When, when Fukushima blew up and when TMI blew up, nobody had seven days warning to make this uh, – um, orderly emergency. Um, so I, I, it just struck me how uh, how much different a nuclear emergency is. You just don't know when it'll occur. Dave Lockbaum's comment is uh, uh, 40 good years in one bad day. And you just mm. never know when that bad day is going gonna, is gonna to hit. So on to your other question, Eileen's um, I uh, symptoms that, uh, that she relayed uh, were, were similar uh, I, actually, I think uh, uh, worse, but similar to uh, survivors of um, uh, at least initial survivors of the uh, uh, exposures at, at, at TMI, and those are around 100 rem, um, which um, you know normal backgrounds about uh, 100 millirem, so it's about a thousand times higher than normal uh, radiation received by an individual. Um, I um, the the Nuclear Regulatory Commission site talks about um, um, the amount of radiation released from TMI is around uh, um, <coughs> 10 million curies, and uh, um, I met Dr. Steve Wing exa almost exactly 10 years ago when Eric invited Steve and I to uh, make presentations in the rotunda at uh, in Harrisburg on the 30th anniversary, then my calculations showed that 
perhaps 10 to 20 times more radiation was released than the uh, NRC had uh, uh, had on their website. And uh, uh, there, there's a, a, a range of radiation estimates, including by the nuclear industry, that are higher than the Nuclear Regulatory Commission um, has on their website. But uh, 10 million curies is what, is what the NRC has posted. And I met Steve Wing. Uh, I spoke first, and Steve realized I couldn't figure out with the amount of radiation that I knew was released, you know, perhaps 100 million curies or or, or somewhat higher, uh, why there weren't cancers. And Steve had the opposite question. He couldn't, he had shown there were cancers and he couldn't understand how they could have occurred with such a small amount of radiation that the uh, NRC had, uh, um, was, was postulating on their website. So um, it was the, that was an aha moment for both of us and we became fast friends until Steve passed a couple of years ago. Um, the, uh, um, the the cancers are real, and the other it's not just cancer, but the the other uh, uh, biological effects that the survivors are experiencing are real, and uh, uh, they're minimized by the uh, uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the uh, nuclear industry in the states, and in Japan they're minimized by the by Tokyo Electric and the owners of the nuclear power plants and the governing agency there, um, METI. Um, I coined a word for this at the, uh, um, at the conference uh, this weekend. And if you combine TMI with the word minimize, which begins with MI, uh, you get to minimize, which I, which I postulated was a verb <laughs> that meant the actions of the nuclear energy uh, regulators and industry to minimize the consequences of radiation to the general public after an, after a disaster. Thanks. So now I'd like to move into uh, opening the phones for people to uh, ask questions. And if uh, we have one half hour, uh, 32 minutes left, and so if people could keep your questions kind of short, and if uh, the um, folks answering could focus on the answers and keep those kind of short, we can get more questions in. And I will, uh, at this point, ask folks uh, to consider donating to uh, our organizations. The websites are www.nirs.org, www tmia.org, although Eric earlier said com. Is that right? No, it's Eric? .org. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, you're right. Okay. Okay. tmia.org. Um, www.fairwinds.org. F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S.org. And uh, Eileen, can we go to uh, www.greenaction, all one word, dash japan.org to donate to your organization? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, and now we'll move on. And uh, Tim uh, Judson, Nears, uh, could you uh, give the instructions for people to call, uh, to ask questions? 
So yes, everybody, if you would like to ask a question, uh, just uh, press star 6 on your phone and you'll be put into a queue. And we'll go through everybody's questions in order and unmute you so you can ask your question. Um, and then to keep it going, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll mute you after your question so that the, so that the presenters can answer. Okay, so are there any questions at this time? Yeah, we have a couple people in the queue already, and also like the first one, which is someone from the 717 area code. Hi, this is Scott Wurtzline, and uh, I just wanted to make a correction. It is TMIA.com. Oh, okay. What, yeah, uh, Scott, thanks for calling in because I'm confused. I think we may have changed it. So what is the proper website for us? Because I think we moved from org to com. Well, if that happened, it would have happened in the last day because I, I went to the site today. Uh, <laughs> sorry, there's no, confusion. Just, Try it both ways, I guess. Okay, no, 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 you no, just no. got to get the ears then. <laughs> no, 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 no. But Scott's right. I, 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 I just checked it. it. I just, I just checked it right now. I just checked it right now. It is .com, right? Okay. Yeah, but are Scott, there? are you still there? Yes. Yeah, just to give a shout out to Scott. Scott was the guy that, uh, that designed our original website and then redesigned the website that we have now. Uh, it's immensely uh, useful in information. He deserves a lot of credit. Uh, he's also the person who was behind the Smithsonian exhibit. Uh, we just did litigation challenging um, the, the quality of steam generators. Uh, Scott's done yeoman's work. We've been good friends for decades, but really his forte is security and safety. And I don't know, Scott, if you want to talk about security at TMI, but you were like one of the first people, really, if not the first, to draw people's awareness to security weaknesses at nuclear power plants. Yeah, the first time I ever said anything was at a public advisory panel for the cleanup of Unit 2. Uh, so this was 1992, and I posed a question to the NRC and the uh, company people at the meeting, what would happen if a terrorist... I said, tonight's a full moon. What would happen if a terrorist had a rocket-propelled grenade? It was <laughs> a rocket-propelled grenade and uh, launched it towards the tanks of water for holding the radioactive uh, results from the accident. And uh, they said, well, we think our guards would be good enough to stop that. Well, the guards don't, don't stand on the other side of the river from this island, and, and that's when I knew we're really in trouble for uh, knowledge and communication on security, and I had already been studying it since 1984 and then pursued it from there. But if there's one thing I could add different than uh, the security, I think we should never forget that on March 28th there would not have been a meltdown that day if the falsification of reactor leak rates weren't occurring by GPU and MedEd. So, in other words, they should have been, they were legally required to be shut down at that time. And the NRC was actually aware that it was going on, according to one of the appellate courts in the United States, uh, U.S. appellate courts. So when I hear these explanations of, Operator error, bad training, faulty equipment, and uh, uh, poor des design and control room, they're all true. But the biggest one of all, t to me, that gets forgotten almost every time, criminal activity. And we have tried to keep up with the legal goings-on with this company and other ones in uh, Pennsylvania uh, f to prevent more troubles 
and to be sure that they're following the law. So right now we do have a petition for enforcement action regarding a problem that we see with the steam generators where they could actually self-destruct during Iraq their transit. But it, it, right from the beginning, the NRCs dropped the ball because they were late on getting back to us that they even received our petition. And it's still not posted anywhere, and, and there's no documents in the Adams system yet. So I, I know what kind of ride I'm in for, and I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, just I just want to point out because I um, for folks Scott has done yeoman's work and I appreciate you calling in and I apologize for getting the website wrong because Scott had worked so hard on it but I think somebody called it what is the official uh, <laughs> website because we we changed is it tmia.com or tm uh-huh. it's t I just checked it it's it's www.tmia.com and you had it right and I had it wrong and I apologize so no TMIA. it happens yep. And it's a great website, by the way. It's really great. Well, thanks, Scott, for that, because I'm a technical, you know, not real well. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to go. Thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you for all you do, Scott. Oh, you're welcome. Tim, next. Uh, so our next uh, question is from a wireless caller who I'm unmuting right now. In the 802 oh. Hello, this is Pete, and I'm calling from uh, Vermont, uh, way up north, almost in Canada, and I'm in my car. But uh, anyway, my question is, uh, it's been my understanding that uh, the personal injury lawsuits uh, concerning TMI were all settled with gag orders. And my question is, is that true, and if so, do they continue... Uh, to be effective uh, for suppressing, uh, you know, the facts and information concerning the accident? Well, this is Eric. Let me start, and then I'll let Arnie finish. Uh, The answer is yes and no. Um, Probably settled for about $100 million, and most of the information was not uh, released to the public, but Pennsylvania has an orphan's court, so damages for children under 18 were released. Uh, What happened is that there was a trial in which the judge, um, in my mind, overreached and uh, used what is known as the Daubert rule, Uh, and she disqualified most of our expert witnesses. Arnie uh, was one of them, but he was not disqualified. So the case was dismembered early on. Um, There's no really valve for relief. Uh, for people who who, uh, were harmed psychologically or physically. But up until that case, they settled for about $100 million. Now, they did receive $560 million through the Price-Anderson Act. And, um, you know, what we've decided to do, and Eileen has talked about it and Arnie has talked about it, is just document what uh, people have experienced. And as a historian, I always tell my students that, you know, I believe that Three Mile Island accident is a crime scene. And like any crime scene, you need forensic evidence and witnesses. Well, we have plenty of evidence uh, and we have plenty of witnesses. And I think right now most folks would uh, concede that, again, Arnie can speak to this, we're not really sure how much radiation got out, but we know a lot got out. And if you're able to do what Arnie and Steve did, link the uh, amount of radiation to the areas where where the fallout occurred, um, then it was unseasonably warm those two days, uh, people were exposed to radiation. Now, I don't see the company ever acknowledging it. In fact, 
let me conclude by saying I used to go to the shareholder meetings, and in 1999 I went to Parsippany, New Jersey, and I said to the company, because I used to introduce resolutions, and, and it got to the point where it was really futile. I just said, look, I'm coming here today to ask for an apology. And the president of the company, Fred Hafer, simply said that we have nothing to apologize for. That was the mindset of the company during the accident, after the accident, and right now the company simply will not respond to any questions concerning the issue. So when it comes to health effects, I don't know if it's going to be revisited through the federal government, but right now we're at a standstill. And um, what we did do, by the way, is we saved the clippings of the uh, children in Orphan's Court. The largest settlement to date was for $1.1 million for a child born with Down syndrome. I don't know if, Arnie, if you wanted to talk about the amount yeah. that was released. This is, this is Arnie. Um, there, there were individual settlements between individuals and GPU, and then there was a class action suit that, uh, uh, that moved separately. The, um, and the, the judge in the class action suit uh, disqualified so many plaintiffs' experts that the plaintiffs had to declare a mistrial. And... Um, um, it, it was. I agree with Eric on the, the judge's overreach, but um, so. But there were uh, non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, that um, that do prohibit people from discussing what happened. Um, for those that made the um, individual um, um, deal between themselves and and uh, GPU, um, the the plaintiffs, the two thousand plaintiffs. Um, we're not bound by any uh, NDAs and uh, and continue to discuss their health effects, uh, but they were not compensated. Eileen, uh, can you – we have one more person in the queue so far, so I was wondering if Eileen might want to talk about um, – around Fukushima, uh, whether people are getting compensated or um, you know, answer this question for the uh, Fukushima area. Yeah, hi. Um, well, there are many, many lawsuits going on, and um, Fukushima evacuees are suing, too, um, about, <clears throat> you know, loss of... Um, you know, loss of their homes, loss of their livelihood, et cetera. Um, right now, um, there have been some um, wins. Uh, for example, um, uh, let's see, let's see be a year and a half ago, there was a win that showed that, um, that the court ruling said that self-evacuees, in other words, the, the areas that were highly contaminated got to be evacuated officially, but those other people that evacuated, they should be treated the same as evacuees. But for example, that one and also official evacuees, um, there's been some compensation, but it's re you win the case, but the amounts are really low. And the government or TEPCO appeals the case. And so for example, this one um, that I mentioned, this lawsuit that I mentioned is now an appellate court. Um, so you know, even if you win in district court, you still have to keep fighting. And there are lawsuits all over the place. I mean, in Kyoto City, there's one. There's Osaka. There's several in Fukushima. They're in, in all sorts of areas in Japan. People who evacuated are suing. Um, and for health damages, of course, it's very difficult. And one of the most difficult things, and for example, um, 
Mizue Kano, the person I, I, I talked about, um, she really regrets, but not that she could really have done anything about it, but when, when she was getting screened um, and the thing went off scale, you know, she doesn't have any paperwork to show that. And, and most people weren't, um, many people weren't screened properly, and even if they were, there's no data left, um, so that's really difficult. Um, and the prefecture has a horrible, horrible um, uh, health management study that's really rigged. Um, uh, and um, so that one is really going to, you, you, can't, you can't find anything if your input data is bad. What they ask is months and months and months after the accident, they ask people, what did you eat in the morning? What did you eat at lunch? What did you eat in the evening of the first day, the second day, et cetera? And of course, once you have lousy data going in, then um, you, you can't track that the outcome might be related to the dose, you know, like where were you in this hour, et cetera. But you're asked so many months afterwards, you can't accurately describe it. So the, 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 the health surveys are really in a bad state. I want to remind folks, if you would like to ask a question, push star six. And I believe we have one more person in line here to speak. Hi there, Michelle Lee from New York. Uh, thank you so much for your presentation. Uh, I just have one comment and then a question. The comment uh, is just sort of, I'm sure people are aware of this, but some years back, the NRC did a study on uh, the consequences of spent fuel pool fire and ascertained that there would be about 9,000 square miles contaminated to a degree that people would have to ev evacuate for a prolonged period. And then um, Frank Von Hippel of Princeton uh, did a follow-up which actually did a more sophisticated modeling analysis using real-world uh, weather data, winds, and so forth, and determined that you'd really actually have over 20,000 miles uh, requiring evacuation. So this, this really is not a community issue. It's a very, very broad uh, national issue. Um, but the question I have, especially given that reality, is I, I'd just like um, you know, to talk a little bit more about the like possibility of the next three-mile accident, island accident, should Exelon and friends get their massive taxpayer or ratepayer subsidies to keep these old plants going? Well, I defer to Arnie. I mean, I hate to speculate on when the next accident would occur. I did say on C-SPAN the other day, and agree with you, that the uh, nuclear waste storage is, is a vulnerable uh, issue and one of tremendous concern for us. Um, you know, obviously at TMI, it's interesting, the plant wasn't really operating that long, so there wasn't a lot of spent fuel. Um, and most of the radioactivity from the fuel, you know, we, we, we moved most of the fuel, but the reactor building itself is ensconced with radiation. Um, Scott Portsign has pointed out, and I'd agree with him. I mean, our proximity to an airport is reason for concern. We asked for a no-fly zone with the FAA, and as I pointed out, you can't fly over Disneyland, but you can fly over Three Mile Island. I just think that one of the more vulnerable parts of the nuclear power plant apparatus 
are the spent fuel pools. I just think that um, they, and I don't want to, you know, get too far into the weeds here, but I, I think there's potential exposure here for us uh, at Three Mile Island. What's ironic is that we have no dry cast storage capability. I'm not saying that's the answer. I think it's a better option than spent fuel pools, but um, in my mind, I think that area raises concern, but I would just point out, you know, that these are old industrial aging complexes where parts wear out. Three Mile Island came online in 1974 and got rave reviews. So did the Ford Pinto, which came out the same year. I don't see anybody retrofitting Ford Pintos. So I, I, I think there's a potential nexus between, you know, running these plants hard, um, old plants, plants wearing down. Things just wear out. So I don't want to speculate on where it might, you know, where the next accident will occur. But I think TMI, Chernobyl, Fukushima have, have really proven the point. It's not if there's an accident but where it is. And that, that's one hell of a risk-reward formula. And I think somebody had mentioned Dave Lockbaum's analogy, and, which is you could have a day, uh, a week, a month, a year of good operations, and it's all wiped out on a weekend, and then you have to deal with it in perpetuity. That's not a risk-reward formula that I'm, I'm willing to deal with. So uh, I'm highly concerned. Exelon has three plants in Pennsylvania, Peach Bottom, Limerick, and TMI. Uh, they have life, license extensions for all of them. They're trying to get Peach Bottom to run for 80 years. I think it's an awful uh, request, which will probably get approved. I know folks are asking for a nuclear autopsy, but... I think we're pushing the envelope here. Old plants being run at a limited, you know, profit margin in some cases. Uh, hell, we even have one plant in Pennsylvania run by a private equity firm. That that's a potential accident waiting to happen. Yeah, this is Arnie. That's a great question. I I I don't want to speculate about where. I will say Maggie and I were walking through our neighborhood in Vermont um, two six weeks before. Fukushima, and she said to me, where's the next accident going to happen? And I said, I don't know where, but I know it's going to be in a Mark I boiling water reactor. And that's exactly what Fukushima was. Um, in my career, you know, I started with my master's degree in 72, and I got my operator's license in 71. So from 71 till now, essentially 50 years, uh, there's been uh, five meltdowns, uh, TMI, and regardless if they call it a partial meltdown or a meltdown, it was a meltdown, uh, Chernobyl, and three meltdowns at Fukushima. So, you know, if you take five meltdowns over 50 years, you're talking about a meltdown every uh, every 10 years. And, um, and Fukushima melted down eight years ago. So, um, you, you know, you can sooner or later you're going to roll snake eyes uh, when, you, uh, when you keep playing this game. Um, I agree with Eric that aging is a, is a critical issue. The um, more plants are are closing than are being built, and the average age of nuclear plants in the United States now is like, I want to say 35 or 36 years old. It might even be more for all I know. Um, worldwide, it's slightly lower than that, but it's over 30 years on plants that were originally designed for 40. So, you know, that aging is a is an issue that I'm concerned about. Um, outside the box, though, there's there's um, three or four issues that that scare the hell out of me. Uh, it's uh, it's seismic issues um, in the United States. Uh, Diablo Canyon stands out for um, the seismic problem child, but around the world there are um, uh, numerous plants in uh, 
in, in, in high seismicity zones. All of Japan, um, some in China and, uh, and some in Korea, et, et cetera. You could go on and on. Um, every single plant that has had an earthquake, and this is uh, the seven at Kajiwazaki Kariwa back in uh, 2008, um, the, the six at Fukushima Daiichi, North Anna near Washington, D.C., every one of those facilities rocked more violently than the designers anticipated, even though the earthquake was smaller than the designers anticipated. Well, now the nuclear industry will say, well, that shows how robust they were. Um, the earthquake came, they shook, and they withstood it. But it really doesn't say that. It, it, what it means is that when the big one hits, which hasn't hit yet, um, the, they they will not stand. So uh, I, one of the one of the issues of, uh, that concerns me is our seismic issues. The second one is terrorism, um, especially with the uh, spent fuel stored outside in, uh, in in plainly visible areas, but anywhere in the plant. We are we are not. Um, equipped to handle uh, um, an organized group of, of terrorists who hit a nuclear plant. Um, the, the, the next one is the um, is something called EMP, electromagnetic pulse. Uh, when the, the sun throws up a solar flare, um, it can uh, uh, knock out the electrical grid. The last time that happened was back in the 1850s when there wasn't an electrical grid called the Carrington effect. And uh, if it happened now, um, uh, numerous plants would be knocked offline and, uh, and potentially disabled. Related to that EMP, though, is, uh, uh, is an act of war. Uh, not a solar uh, electromagnetic pulse, but a weapons electromagnetic pulse. Um, I'm old enough to remember um, back in the 60s, um, the government fired a, 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 an atom bomb off in outer space over uh, near Hawaii, 90, 900 miles away from Hawaii, and knocked Hawaii off the grid. So um, if, a, if, a, if a power that didn't like us very much were to put, you know, not, not to attack with a missile that hit Washington, but to put a missile into orbit that, that had a, uh, um, a relatively small nuclear weapon on it and fired that weapon, say, over Ohio, it would uh, knock out all the nuclear reactors in Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, et, et cetera. And, and they would melt down. Um, the integrate circuits would fail, and there would be no way to, uh, um, to avoid it. Um, all of these are outside what the NRC considers the design bases of the plant. But, I mean, the 45-foot-high tsunami at Fukushima shows you that, uh, you know, sooner, and late, sooner or later in any foolproof system, the fools are going to exceed the proofs. Um, nuclear plants are designed for something called the maximum credible accident. And uh, Maggie and I say it's really the maximum cash available. Um, they, they'll build a plant uh, with enough money to still say sell electricity competitively. And if a, um, if a disaster strikes and they have not built the plant robustly enough, 
then the uh, NRC says, well, yeah, but that was beyond the design basis for the plant, so that one doesn't count. Uh, in fact, it does. You know, the plants are built on a budget, and um, Mother Nature can throw things at these plants, or terrorists can throw things at a plant, or hostile governments can throw things at plants, um, none of which are they prepared to face. Let's take one last caller, and then uh, uh, can I... Yep. Okay. Oh, I mean, uh, uh, this, yes. This, please take a caller. I, I wanted to comment briefly, but but take please take Who's a caller speaking? first. Who's speaking? Is this Eileen? Uh, it's Eileen. It's Eileen. Yeah. No, go right ahead, please. Well, I'll try to be brief. Um, this every what everybody's been pointing out are all really real issues that could actually cause disasters. Um, the spent fuel pool was a real issue in Japan uh, right after 3-11, the Fukushima accident. Um, in the days following the accident, uh, Sandia National Laboratories did an analysis for Japan, and the actual, uh, Prime Minister of Japan had to actually weigh that, and that is that if the spent fuel pools went in, in, at Fukushima, Japan faced half of the country not becoming, in, becoming inhabitable. And that's what the prime minister had to face for quite a while until it looked like it was okay. So it was very real. Um, and the other thing I want to say is that if you're listening and you're like 50 miles away or 30 miles away from nuclear power plant, you're not in the evacuation zone. Again, I want to repeat that you may have to receive evacuees. And so there are lots of municipalities that have an, a concrete, you know, kind of you know, a burden because of nuclear power. And in Japan, we've been able to win, a local authority have been able to win um, cities and towns. The right, it's the right to say yes or no to restart um, outside of the 20-mile zone. And I think that if you go to your towns and say, look, if we're going to be affected, we should have a say in this. And it's important that, you know, obviously it's a long-haul issue, and so there's just a few activists running around like crazy trying to, you know, not have the huge accident happen. And so everybody's voice is important, and you're the expert in your town. You know what it will be like, what will happen to your town if something happens. And so, you know, talk to your members of Congress, talk to your legislators, and it's everybody kind of saying, look, what will happen to me? What will happen to my, you know, um, care center? Or what will happen, et cetera? And, and, you know, raise your voices is, I think, really important. It's a democracy issue, this whole thing. Uh, I believe we have one more caller. We've got about three or four more minutes. I wanted to let people know that on the NIRS website, www.nirs.org, we'll be publishing one of uh, Eileen's uh, interviews and testimonials per day over the next few weeks. And we'll be tweeting the links out, uh, putting it on Facebook. But we want to help uh, share the information that uh, Three Mile Island has injured people. Um, the last caller, uh, Tim, could you open that line? Oh, hello. Thanks. This is Pete again. I'll be very brief. There's a book titled Chernobyl. Uh, the author, I believe, was Yabakov. And I'm just wondering if any uh, anyone uh, endorses uh, or the information contained in that book, I found it absolutely astounding, and I don't hear very much about it. And uh, just wondering if anyone can endorse 
uh, what's the in the New York book? Academy of Medicine book? Is this the one? Uh, Yabakov, yeah. Yabakov, yeah. and two others? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 It, it's a great well, book, is, and it, it was translated by uh, Jeanette Sherman. Um, yes. Yep. Yeah, this is Arnie Gunderson. Uh, I, I knew Alexi well before he died, and uh, uh, it's a great book. And, you know, it, yeah, I've written a peer-reviewed paper, and, and when the nuclear industry doesn't like your paper, they ignore it. And right. that's what they did with Alexi's book. Uh, and uh, um, uh, But that doesn't mean it's wrong. In fact, it's, it's accurate. There's a lot more there, uh, including, uh, you know, arresting key scientists and destroying... Uh, um, databases, epidemiological databases, and things like that. Um, but we, we, we don't have time to, to go there. Good book. Um, I was just going to try to get the title of it here. Do you have the actual title there, um, Pete? Uh, let's see, Chernobyl. It, here it is. Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, uh, Yablokov, Nesterenko, Nesterenko, and it was published in 2007 and in English in 2009. I want to thank uh, uh, Eileen Miyoko-Smith, uh, Arnie Gunderson, and Eric Epstein for joining us here today, and uh, thank all of those who called in and those who will be listening. This will be published um, on the NEARS website in the next few days. And we hope that we can uh, avert any future nuclear disasters like TMI. Thank you. Appreciate you guys hosting us. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, folks.